This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church, reaching people to discover life in Christ. Stay tuned and visit us on the internet at nagsheadchurch.org. In my years of pastoring, I've seen both of the following scenarios played out many times. Couple number one and couple number two. Both couples are solid Christians, by the way. Couple number one really lives what they believe. There is no pretense to them. They don't just come to church. They struggle at times like everyone else who knows the Lord, but they really walk with the Lord. It's not just a church thing. It's a, it's a life thing with them. Yet at the same time, their kids who are now adults live spiritually destitute lives. Their oldest has always been incorrigible. The backseat of a police cruiser is a very familiar place to him. Their daughter is a drug addict, and she is the greatest liar in all the world. And because of these kids, mom and dad battle with all kinds of emotions, things like anger and frustration, embarrassment, and shame. Most of all, mom and dad feel guilty, especially when they are around the church and they see in the church, other Christians that their kids grew up with and went to youth group with, and these Christian kids who grew up and they're solid citizens and growing Christians, they feel guilty. And to them, their wayward children are proof that they failed as Christian parents, that they must have messed up big time for their kids to be so unproductive as adults. Now, the friends at church don't say it, but they can't get past the feeling that their friends at church agree. You blew it with your kids. You weren't good parents. That's couple number one. Couple number two also has a wild child. She grew up going to church. She went to youth group and camps and all the rest. They did their best to make sure that she had a positive peer group. And and in short, they did everything they knew to do as parents to raise her in a godly home, one that was Christ-centered, to give her that kind of upbringing. But when she graduated from high school and she graduated with honors and she had scholarships and went to college, but she got, as soon as she moved out and went to college, she it was like her life went totally the other direction. She got into the party scene at school, and then she moved in with her boyfriend, and before the year was over, she had dropped out of school. Years later, she's still the same. She hasn't been to church since high school. She still lives with her boyfriend, except it's a different guy now, and marriage isn't in the picture. And yet, her mom and dad feel none of the guilt that the other couple with the couple wrangles with every day. Sure, they're disappointed, and they are. But they know that sooner or later, their daughter, like the prodigal son that Jesus talked about, will come back to her senses and come back to God. And that hope that they, that they have in that, they say, is based on a promise from God that children raised the right way in a good and godly home will one day come home to the Lord. God, God will bring them back, he promised. And so they have hope. Both of these couples are strong Christians. But why then, do you wonder, is 
one couple languishing in guilt while the other couple's not. Well, believe it or not, their contrasting emotions are both based on the same core assumption, the belief that a good and godly home guarantees good and godly kids. The first couple, couple number one, believes their home was, must have been more messed up than they ever realized and that they're failures. Couple number two, however, looks at the guarantee that they believe in to mean that their daughter one day will come back to the faith. At least the second couple, the ones with hope, have it best in the short run, but realistically in the long run, both couples are headed down a dead-end street because they've both bought into the same spiritual urban legend that godly homes guarantee godly kids. It's a lie, and continually, continually it has the potential to crush their faith. Well, where did that legend come from? Like so many, there's a spark of truth that legends come from. Where did that legend come from? The, the, you know, a lot of us can quote this verse. I think this is probably where it originated. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6 says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not turn from it. Now, that's the word of God. It's a perfect verse. But most people seem to think this is a guarantee that a child raised correctly will come back to the Lord eventually. I've heard that taught before. Maybe you have too, but that's not what the verse says. In fact, this verse is not a promise. It's a proverb. What's the difference? A promise from God is something that's absolute. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. There's a promise from God. It's absolute, but this is not a promise. A proverb is simply an observation about how life generally works. Most of the Proverbs in the book of Proverbs, so many of them were written by a man named Solomon. And they were Solomon's observations about life. It was like Solomon was writing, here's what I've noticed as I've lived life. Here's what usually happens. They're God-breathed observations about life. But a proverb doesn't mean, and this is how it always happens with everyone every time, does it? For example, contrary to the proverbs, the righteous aren't always honored are they? Sometimes the wicked succeed. Sometimes hard workers lose everything. Sometimes the laziest man in town is the guy who wins the lottery, isn't he? That's why couple number one, why their shame and their guilt is so uncalled for. Their wayward kids are no more proof that they failed than a young Christian who unexpectedly dies is proof that he or she must have had some terrible sin in his or her life for God to take them like that. They may have been terrible parents. They may have been great parents. Same thing true with couple number two. But the lifestyles and the choices of adult children don't prove either. Eventually, couple number two's daughter, eventually, you know who she's going to have to answer to for her life? God. For her choices. Write this down if you're taking notes. God holds us as parents accountable for how we raise our children, not for how they turn out. Well, that verse in Proverbs, train up a child. 
How did it get so turned around to mean that a lost child will turn back around and God promises it? Because that's not what it says. In fact, you can't find that anywhere in the Bible. Look, look at what the verse, the verse says again. It said, train up a child in the way he should go. Now, it's not talking about potty training, although that works, doesn't it? You train them how they should go, and they do. Some of you are in that stage right now. That's not what this verse is about. And Bible scholars disagree as to what kind of training it means. Some say this is talking about train them to walk in the path of godliness. And others say, well, the Hebrew wording, the phrase is better interpreted to mean this. We as parents are to train and guide them so that they discover their strengths and their talents and their personality so that then they can go into life doing what they're made to do, if you will. How many of you guys, let me just ask the guys, how many of you guys were ever, as you grew up, you were forced by mom or dad or both to take piano lessons and you hated it? Raise your hand, guys. Don't be, go, raise it up real, she's sitting right beside you. Yeah, you're forced to take piano lessons and you hated it. You know, you can't drive that round peg into that square hole, can you? But some of you guys said, you know what, I took piano lessons and I really liked it. Why? Because you are musically inclined. You've got a bent toward that. That's maybe how you're talented. It didn't bother you at all. What this verse is saying is very simply this. It's, by the way, it's a, it's a proverb and not a promise. Most of us wish that it was a promise, but there's nothing about guaranteeing a return to the Lord, especially after a time of, of rebellion. Now, what is, the, what is the training? Both concepts are important, and you can find support for, their, for both of them somewhere in the Bible. Christian parents indeed do need to teach their children the pathway of righteousness. We need to train them to live life in a way that best fits their personality and their gifts. In fact, the Bible says in Ephesians 5, excuse me, Ephesians 6, verse 4, it says, And fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. But that next phrase in that verse in Proverbs is so often misinterpreted. When he is old, he won't turn from it. But guess what's not there in that verse? There's nothing there about a guarantee that a wayward child will return to the Lord, especially after that time of rebellion. We might like it to be, but in fact, it says very simply this. If you look at it, it says, hey, they won't turn away in the first place, is what it says. But remember, this is not a promise. This is a proverb. So it doesn't mean that a properly raised child will never rebel. It's just saying that he's unlikely to do so. But what it is saying, I believe, is that we as parents have an important role to play in our children's development and, 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 the, and to play in our children's values as they grow so that they'll carry those things with them the rest of their lives. But for those who do turn away, and some of you are parents of kids who've done so, those who do turn away from the Lord, frankly, the Bible is silent about the odds of their returning. The story of the prodigal son, and so many people say, but I'm going to claim the prodigal son. 
but he's not your son. And that's not your story. It's a parable. And there's no guarantee that's mentioned there or odds given that others like him will do the same. In fact, the prodigal son really is a story about forgiveness. That's why couple number two, the couple who's banking on their daughter eventually returning to the faith, to the faith is, that's why their, their hope is based on that verse, yet what's done in their lives is that it has unintentionally set themselves up for an attack on their faith. And one day, if she never comes back, 10 years down the road, 20, 30 years, whenever it might be, and they realize she's not coming back, One day they may pick up their Bible and shake it in the face of God and say, but you promised. And if God could speak back in an audible voice, he would say, but I didn't. But I didn't. Here's how we allow this legend to wrongly burden godly parents. I want you to jot a couple things down. First of all, this burdens godly parents with undeserved guilt. But it can also put unwarranted guilt on parents whose kids may be hyperactive, learning disabled, autistic, emotionally handicapped, strong-willed, or just plain incorrigible. And those of us who witness out-of-control kids, we all, anybody go to the carnival this past week and see some out-of-control kids, you know, who they didn't get that cotton candy, they, they didn't get to ride that ride they want. I saw a lot of kids, you know, carnival, you think, this is happy time for the kids. I saw a lot of bawling kids, you know, pitching fits. We see, we go out in places and we see out-of-control kids. Sometimes we're very quick to judge about that, aren't we? And then also, typically along with out-of-control kids, we also see out-of-control parents. And oftentimes we wonder, why does God give children to people like that? What kind of parents are they? But sometimes the reality is that kids seem, that seem undisciplined really have some valid medical reasons. One group that can get particularly hammered by this myth is adoptive parents in an act of sacrificial love or grace. They take into their home and into their family children who maybe their parents were not able to raise them for one reason or another. And they take them into their homes and they give them, they give them a home and they give them a family that will provide them an upbringing that gives a spiritual foundation and hopefully when they walk away, when they grow up, will have produced a solid citizen and many succeed. But for those who don't, the pain and the guilt can be horrific, especially if they believe a good home guarantees good kids. But when an adopted child, who maybe whose biological parents had issues, maybe that nobody knew about, that child begins to show some of the academic or social struggles and problems that plagued his or her biological parents, can you really say they turned out like they are because of their home life? There's only so much a godly home can do to counter inherited physical or emotional inclinations. Now, that doesn't excuse bad behavior. Even a child's behavior that it's influenced by genetics doesn't excuse most bad things. We all have the capacity 
to overcome. That's why we're held personally responsible for our actions. No one can say, well, I'm a thief. I'm a drunk. I'm a bum because my dad or mom was. No one can blame someone else for their choices in life. We are all born with a sin nature that's geared toward self-centeredness, that's geared toward desiring sinful behavior. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says it very plainly. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to who? Everyone. For everyone sinned. And that nature, please hear me, cannot be eliminated by environment, by taking a sinner and putting that sinner in a lovely home, and hopefully that will change everything. That nature can't be eliminated by environment. It can only be overcome by new birth in Christ. But guilt's not the only burden that comes with believing this urban legend. Some bear guilt, but the rest of us perhaps bear this, and that burden is foolish pride. It hits those who buy into the myth that good and godly homes result in good and godly kids, and by God's grace, we just happen to have children who are naturally compliant, spiritually motivated, or academically gifted. And when our kids turn out right, isn't it easy to take the credit? It's what we, that's the way we all are. We just love to pat ourselves in the back and tell ourselves that we had something to do with it. But what happens in your family when one of your kids is just kind of like the the golden child and the other child in your family winds up a drug addict? Do you take credit for one and not take blame for the other? If you're going to take credit for the one, you have to be honest and do that. I remember in my first year of ministry 34 years ago, In Southern California, I had a college degree, just graduated. College degree with a major in youth ministries, and and I had come across some great parenting materials. I wanted to teach to the parents of my youth group. I thought I can serve them by teaching these parents of teens how to be good parents. Here I was, a 22-year-old newlywed, telling parents of teenagers how to be a parent. And, you know, they, they sat, and they came to the class, and they sat, and they listened politely and patiently. But on more than one occasion, I remember one fellow in particular, on more than one occasion, this guy would say, Rick, you just wait till you have kids. Anybody ever told that by somebody older in life? You just wait till it's your turn. And you know what? He was right. See, I had all the theory But I had none of the knowledge. It wasn't, you know, I had no hard knocks yet. It wasn't that anything I was teaching was wrong or bad. It was all good stuff. But I just thought I had all the answers as to how to deal with teens. And now here I am 34 years later. I have survived three teenagers, right? Survived in some way. You know, when I started with teenagers, my hair was dark brown. I have survived three teenagers, and here's what I figured out. Those of you who are parents of little ones, your kids have not become teens yet, here's what I learned. Let me give you my greatest piece of wisdom, my greatest piece of experience is this. When they turn 13, they go brain dead for about eight years. 
I had no idea when I was 22. I just, my brain had just started working again. Train a child in the way he should go. When he's three, we call him stubborn. But when he's 33 and stubborn, we say about that young man, you know, that young man has conviction and backbone. That entrepreneurial businessman who's not afraid to go out on the limb and try new things and, and, and take the risks. He was the guy in kindergarten the teacher never could get to color between the lines. And that kid who's fidgety and easily bored and always has to be doing more than one thing, it seems, he might likely become an executive who's a high-powered multitasker. You see, parents, hear me, hear me here. Children are not mindless lumps of wet clay that we as parents can shape into whatever we want them to become. You know, a great illustration of that. It's kind of late in the year now, but next spring, go out to the ball field and watch the dads coach little league ball. And you'll see what I'm talking about. I'm going to make you a superstar athlete if it kills me. See, neither their accomplishments, your children's accomplishments, or their sins necessarily reflect on our parenting skills or our godliness any more than you could say to a godly Christian farmer out there that the annual harvest represents his skill or godliness. He can't control the rainfall. He can't control the sunshine. You see, there are too many variables that come into play, and the final outcome is out, parents, out of our hands. Well, that being said, let me say some things to parents today, especially with dads. I want you to listen up, but all of you are parents, and those of you who are not parents yet, who may someday be parents, I hope you get these things. Number one, if you really want to turn your kids off to God, be a hypocrite. You really want to turn them off to God, go to church, but never become like Christ. My experience in the years that I was in youth ministry showed me something that I found to be very startling and and concerning. And it was this, and I, I was in a number of churches. One church, I had over 300 kids in my youth department. And I had some kids who were great, godly kids. But what I discovered was the kids who were the most godly young people seemed to be kids whose parents were not even believers. And the kids that I saw in my youth groups that were the most spiritually dead or apathetic, who did not care about God, they were the kids whose parents were members of the church and they were drugged to church every Sunday by their parents. Now, I'm not against parents saying, you're going to church with me today. We did that. Our kids never got to choose if they were going to church or not. But what I discovered was that very few Christian homes produce kids who grow up to love the Lord with all their hearts. And I don't think that should be the case. So parents, number one, if you, you know, take a look at who you really are as a Christian. Not who you say you are, but who you really are as a Christian versus who you claim to be. And if you are Playing Christian, if your Christianity is plastic 
and not real. Please understand, especially when your kids get into the teenage years, they will figure you out. They'll know it. You, can't, you can fool me and you can fool your friends. You can fool those in your small group. You can fool those you minister with. But you can't fool your kids. They'll figure it out and you will turn them off to God. And if you are a hypocrite, I will say this morning, you are guilty of hypocrisy. Number two, dads, this is especially for you. The greatest gift you can give your children is to love their mother. Number one thing I would say to you dads, young dads, old dads, the greatest gift you can do, give your kids. Why? It gives them hope and it gives them security. It teaches them how to love their spouses. They're watching how you love one another. Now, I'm not saying, Dad, you get your kids and say, okay, tonight, son, come here, son, your mom and I are going to make out, and I want you to watch because I'm really good at this. (laughs) That's not where I'm going, okay? We're not talking about that. Teach them, let them see, Dad, how you serve her. Let them see how you make her the queen of your home, how you respect her. And if you're a single dad and we have single dads and you're doing the job maybe in your home of both mom and dad, and if, because you're a single dad and you and your kid's mother are not married and maybe there's, some, there's divorce in the reason for that and, and maybe the relationship is not good, typically it's not, please hear me, single dad, teach your son to respect his mother by you respecting her. That means don't say anything critical of her in your kid's hearing. Bite your tongue, if that's what it takes. And the same goes to you, by the way, you single moms of their father. Teach them to respect him by you showing some respect as well. Listen, boys need to know how to love their wives. They're not going to get it from listening to the music they listen to these days. They're not going to get it from what they see on the movie screen. They're going to learn how to love their wives, Dad, by watching you love Mom. By the way, it's important to daughters as well. Why? Because your daughters, I had a, we had a child, parent-child dedication in the last gathering, and Kent and Petrina were up here with little Charlotte. And I said to them this. I said, one of these days, this little girl is going to get up to be about the same height as you, Mom, and the predators are going to show up calling, knocking on the door. And I said, she needs to know how to choose a man who's going to love her and treat her with respect. And the way she's going to learn how to do that, Kent, is by watching how you love Petrina, watching how you love your mom. Daughters need to learn how to choose the right spouse, how to look for that, what to look for in that potential husband. So, Dad, love your, love your wife Number three, give them your time by doing life with them. Do life with them. Now, this is going to be painful for some of you because I'm going to stomp on some toes here right now. But that's okay. I think it's necessary. This may mean, Dad, that some of you need to change jobs. If your job is too demanding of your time, if your job takes you away from home too often. There are thousands, even in this economy, there are thousands of jobs out there that will allow you to spend more time with your children. 
And here's why. I'd rather be flipping burgers if that would allow me to spend time with my kids than having to travel all the time and never have the time to spend with them. Why is that? You only get these children for a short period of time. Just, you just get one shot at it, and then they're gone. And when they're gone, your time to influence them, for the most part, is past. And speaking as a father whose kids are now grown up and adults, I understand this because I know I will never get that time back. And there are many times I wish we could go back in time 15 or 20 years and the hours that I spent at work and the hours maybe that I spent away, the hours that I spent doing things that I thought were really important, I wish I had gone back and spent some time with my children, invested more in them. I'll never get that back. It's interesting. Gail made the statement to me, Maybe it was this morning when she said to me, Happy Father's Day, but she said, she said, you're a good father. She said, but I think you're a better grandfather. You know why that is? I learned some things. And some of you older guys, you know what I'm talking about. Give them your time by doing life with them. Whatever it is, spend time with your kids. Number four, model Jesus' life before them. Take on the responsibility of guiding them spiritually. It's not the church's job to bring your kids to Jesus. Can I say that again? It is not the church's job to bring your kids to Jesus. Let me repeat that one more time. It is not the church's job to bring your children to Jesus. Whose job is it, parents? It's yours. Absolutely. What does the church do? It is our role as a church to complement what you are doing in their lives seven days a week. If you have little ones, the time to start is right now. I believe they ought to be here with you at church. I think it's great to, that we have, we have a Kidmo and Lil' K going up right now and happening, and, and our little ones are hearing Bible lessons and being influenced by godly people, but they don't take the place of mom and dad. Sure, bring them to church. Get them started. Get them in our, in our youth group in Contagious. I think it blows my mind as a parent and as a former youth pastor when I see parents who don't take advantage of the resources that are provided to help you along. Don't waste them. But ultimately, it's not the church's job. Ultimately, you're accountable for how they're raised, and that includes their spiritual instruction. And all that starts, all those points start by getting your own life in line with his. Uh, The Garden of Eden If we look to a great example in the scriptures of parenting, what better place to go than Father God? And the Garden of Eden teaches a great, great lesson that I hope you leave with here this morning about parenting. You know anything about Genesis, the first few chapters, you know the Garden of Eden was the place God created for the very first man and woman, Adam and Eve. And he created them, Adam from the dust of the earth, Eve from a rib from Adam's side, and he put them together and it was though he was the parent. The environment was perfect in Eden. Everything they needed was there. The climate, everything, no disease, 
all they could ever want for was right there for them. Not only was the environment perfect, the parent was perfect as well, wasn't he? God was their father. Yet we all know what happened in Eden. We know the story. Adam and Eve disobeyed. Adam and Eve lied, tried to cover up what happened. And as a result, as we read a little while ago in Romans 5, as a result, every single one of us have been born in the backwash of their rebellion. But we look at that story, and if for nothing else, Adam and Eve proved that environment cannot control the outcome. No matter what the psychologists and the psychiatrists say, it's not about environment controlling the outcome. Because if rebellion can happen there, perfect environment, perfect parent. If rebellion can happen in that kind of a home, family, I guess it can happen in the very best of Christian homes, can it? See, there are no perfect parents. There are no perfect children, no matter how hard we try to make them that way. There are no perfect families, no perfect marriages, but that's okay. Parents, your kids don't need perfection from you. That's not what they need. They need very simply for you to be the very best you can be. They need for you to know the Lord and walk with the Lord every day of your life and not give them anything less than that. But even then, you need to accept the fact that your child, every child, has a free will. And they will ultimately one day be responsible for their own choices. You and I, who are parents, will be held accountable by God for how we raise them. Would you pray with me? Tough stuff today, Lord, because it exposed some nerves, I think, in, in all of us, in me, certainly. A lot of us have believed something that you never did promise, you never did say, and we've been clinging to that or we've been beating ourselves up with that. We've been dealing with guilt or we've been dealing with foolish pride, and I pray, Father, you'd help us to realize today we do have responsibility as parents to be the very best parents under you that we can be and to live in your strength, to live in your guidance, to bring our children up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, to teach them about you and teach them your word. But ultimately, God, the choices they make are not ours, it's theirs. So this morning, there are parents here today, Father. You know all of them. I can maybe think of a few, but I know there are parents here today who are living with a rebellious child. Or maybe that child is like our couples, has moved on, and they're not living at home anymore, but their lives are a wreck. And that parent daily is grieving over that and maybe guilty, feeling guilt because of that. May you help them realize, Lord, that they're responsible for themselves, that hopefully they did not live as a hypocrite. I hope these dads here that are here today, Lord, will will learn how to more than ever love mom, especially so the kids can see how to serve, how man serves his wife treats her like a queen. Our kids need that example.
that we might live Jesus' life before them. That only comes through your power and by your grace. Help us not to demand perfection from ourselves or from our children. We can't be that way. But Lord, help us not to be slackers either. Help us to point and help us to direct. Help us to give our kids the training that they need the best that we possibly can. I pray, Father, that you'll bless these parents, especially the young ones. Uh, This is not a world, frankly, God, that I'm kind of concerned about the world that my grandkids are going to grow up in, how they need godly parents, how they need a church family. They need all these things more than ever in this society. So I pray for them, for their generation. I pray for their moms and dads to rise up and be godly men, godly women, and put their faith and trust in you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church, reaching people to discover life in Christ. Visit us on the internet at nagsheadchurch.org.